We are really glad that you're here. And if, if church is not what you normally do, you're in the right place because we're, we're just real people here just being casual and, and, and enjoying the Lord and just making friends. And uh, kids, if you want, you can be dismissed to uh, the lobby. They're going to take them to kids' worship in the back. And that's from fourth grade and younger. Fifth and sixth graders can go if they want as well. We like to study books of the Bible here at Revolution Church. And so right now we're in the Gospel of, the Mar of Mark. And we're in the eighth chapter. And it's exciting because we're learning about the greatest person who ever lived. And that's Jesus Christ. No one else has lived before him or since him who's been as great as he is. And the reason he's the greatest wasn't just because he elevated to some spiritual status. He was God in human flesh. That's what the angel told Mary, that you will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so that's what Jesus Christ did. He became God with us so that we could learn about him. But more than just be a good example is that he'd be our savior. Because he, God looked down and saw a race of human beings that were lost and without any hope at all. And he came to die for their sins. Because our sins separate us from God for all eternity. And we're created to be eternal beings, to live somewhere for eternity. And God wanted it to be with him. So he sent Christ to die for us. So here in Mark chapter 8, if you'll just follow along on the screen or in your Bible as we go along here. It says, in those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and this is at the peak of Jesus' popularity, great crowds are following everywhere he goes, even as a farther way he travels. And they had nothing to eat, and he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowds because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said, these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away, and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why do these does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them and got into the boat and went to the other side. Now, they had forgotten to bring bread. And they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? Remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full broken pieces did you take up then? And they said, Twelve. And he said, seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full broken pieces did you take up? 
And they said, seven. And the last verse here says, and he said to them, do you yet not understand? And this is the word of the Lord. This, is, this guy's name is Winston Churchill. He was the prime minister of England during World War II. And he made a statement that is so true. He said, those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And that's what the world we live in right now. We have kids who aren't even being taught history in school, and there are four things like socialism and communism. And it's like, did you not remember what World War II was all about and how we you know, pushed back communism and how the whole Cold War and how everywhere you go in the world, communism and socialism fail and people starve? Look at Cuba and Venezuela, places that try to stop to practice communism and socialism, and yet you have your kids on college campuses saying, I'm for socialism, and you're like, you don't know history, and that's why you're doomed to repeat it. But you know, we as Christians are, are able to do the same thing. Our parents make mistakes, and, and their grandparents make mistakes, and then we'll grow up and make the same mistakes, you know, like get into debt and charge up lots of credit cards and do kinds of all dumb stuff when you see people doing that over and over again and having to declare bankruptcy and ruin their lives with that, and yet we will think somehow we are the exception, and so we don't learn from history, we just repeat it. How many of you repeat some of the times the same mistakes you've learned over and over again, right? All of our hands should be up. I, I know that's me for sure. Three things we see here in Mark chapter 8. You see him feeding the famished 4,000. And if this sounds, story sounds familiar, it was just four weeks ago we studied about the feeding of the 5,000. So this isn't a repeat of the same story. This is a different crowd, different place. And then the second point is fighting the phony Pharisees. You like my alliteration here? And then the last one is frustrated with his faithless followers. So we're going to go through all three of these. You see, skeptics will look at this story, believe it or not, and they'll say, see, the Bible's full of contradictions. One time it says he fed 5,000. Here it says 4,000. They can't get their numbers right. Well, anybody who would say that is not looking at it carefully. It says, sometimes the, they say these two miracles are so similar that Mark must have gotten confused and recorded the same story twice, and even then he didn't get the details right. Well, let's just compare the two. How many similarities are there? At, at a glance, it looks like there might be. Here one is 5,000 and the other is 4,000. And then one is by the shore of Galilee, and the other one is also by the shore of Galilee. And then one is in a desert place, and the other one's in a desert place. And then one is five loaves, the other is how many? Seven loaves. Okay, so that's close numbers, so maybe he's getting his details mixed. One is two fish, and the other is a, a few small fish. And then uh, Jesus prays and breaks the bread, and he does the same thing with this story. And then there's 12 baskets left over. How many is left over in the one we just read? Seven baskets. So maybe Mark's mixed up. Well, let's look at it more carefully. Do these similarities mean that Mark's mistaken and he's repeating the same story twice, just a couple of chapters away? Let's look at it. Um, you see, if you were wanting to believe the Bible's not true, you would stop there and say, see, yeah, Mark's just mixed up. Doesn't know what he's talking about. But if you're truly looking for truth, then you'll examine the story just a little bit more carefully. You'll do some little detective work. Yes, the first one, it was 5,000, but it says 5,000 men. It didn't even count the women and children. About how many people total were there in that crowd? Could have been anywhere from 16 to 20,000 people. Big miracle on Jewish territory. In this one, it says 4,000 people. Much, much smaller crowd. So we're talking maybe 16 to 20,000 over one can and then approximately 4,000 on the other hand. 
And yes, it was on the shore of Galilee, Galilee, but the first feeding was on the northwest side in Jewish territory. The second one was on the southeast side of the, ocean, of the sea, completely different territory, uh, Gentile territory. And yes, one of them wasn't a desert place, but it says there was a desert place. He said, but send them to villages nearby so they can get themselves some food. In the second story, it says there was nowhere nearby to get food. So this is completely a different story. One was five loaves, and the other was seven. Mark's not stupid. He knows his numbers. He's not mixing it up. It didn't say five or six. Then we would say maybe that you could see that. But clearly these two different numbers mean something. And then one story, it says it was two fish, and the word fish means like big fish you could eat, make a meal from. And then the second story, the word for fish here, small fish, is literally sardines. So we're talking two big fish versus a handful of sardines. So Mark's giving some details that tell us these are two completely different stories. And yes, in both stories, Jesus breaks the bread and, pray, and gives thanks for, it, thanks for it. But what does Jesus always do? You know, so those similarities don't mean it's a repeat of the same story. And then what's interesting is it says on the first story, when it was in Jewish, Jewish territory, it was 12 baskets. And these baskets would be like the equivalent of your laundry basket. You know, those big baskets you carry with two handles. And a lot of times they would use them, yes, for laundry, but a lot of times they'd use them as like a picnic basket when they were going to feed the whole family. And in the second story, when it says seven baskets, it's, it's Gentile baskets like you carry on your arm, like Little Red Riding Hood when she's carrying just a little basket on her arm. So two totally different baskets here. So Mark is clearly not confused. And then here's probably the most important detail. The first miracle, there's 12 baskets left over. What, why is the number 12 significant? There's 12 tribes of Israel. There's also 12 disciples who are going to the 12 tribes. So he's saying, you know, not only will I feed the 5,000, I am here to feed all of Israel. Well, when he goes into Gentile territory, he has seven baskets left over. What is important about the number seven? Well, guess how many Gentile nations surround the nation of Israel? Seven. His, this miracle is saying, hey, I'm not just here to perform miracles for you. I'm here to perform miracles for the whole world. So the numbers matter, and these two different miracles each have two different clear messages. So when someone reads this, and they say, oh, the Bible's full of contradictions, it's like they're not even willing to try just to read it just a little more carefully. It says, in those days. What days? Well, the days where Jesus' miracles are, like, taking off, last and he just got done he healing a deaf and mute man, a man that everybody else had rejected, and he healed them, and he's done several miracles. And so in the days of all these miracles, a great crowd had gathered because more and more people want to get miracles, and he called his disciples to him and says that, I have compassion on the crowd. This is the same thing he said last time. I am so glad that we have a Savior who is full of compassion, and we need to be that way. We need to be looking for the unloved, the ones who are rejected, the ones that aren't popular, the ones that don't have money, the ones that are tired and hungry and depressed. That's who we are called as the disciples of Jesus to reach. And that's who Jesus is reaching here. He shows compassion continually and says because, he says, they've been with me, think about this, three days and nothing to eat. Now, we don't know exactly if they have not eaten for three days, but they probably packed enough food for maybe a day but then this revival went on longer. And so the second day, they're like, yeah, we, they're wanting to hear Jesus teach. They're wanting to see the miracles. And now the third day has started. So they probably haven't eaten for maybe 36 hours. And Jesus is feeling bad for them. 
And, and so there, this number three days, though, if you study the Bible, it is all over the place. 75 times in the Bible, and I won't go through all of them. But I want to refresh your memory on some, some of them, especially for those of you who've grown up in church. You will know that number three days is very significant. The earth brought forth vegetation or life on the third day. Okay? That's important. Plant that in your head. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place afar off where he would offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice. And of course, we know in that story, he pulled up the knife and then the angel of the Lord said, hey, don't. It was just a test to see if you're willing to, to give everything to God. On the third day, Pharaoh releases his cheap cupbearer from death row. Okay? So you see situations where everything looks hopeless and then all of a sudden life is brought into the situation. Moses asked Pharaoh that led his people on a three-day journey out in the wilderness to sacrifice. Three days is important. God appeared at Sinai on the third day after the people arrived. On the third day after fasting, Esther puts on royal apparel and enters the palace of the Persian king in order to thwart a death plot against her people after three days. Jesus was missing for how many days when he was 12? Three days, okay? And then... Again, I won't do all 75. Paul, when he first met Jesus on the road to Damascus, he was blinded for how long? For three days. Jesus prophesied that he would rise from the dead on what day? On the third day. Do we see a pattern here? So the third day means when the world is dark and everything seems hopeless, God steps in. And you see that pattern all throughout Scripture, and he does the same thing here. People are hungry, they haven't eaten for three days, and Jesus is about to step in. He says, if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint. They're going to pass out. Okay? And some of them have come from really far away for the, to see these miracles. In Matthew, he gives a little more detail. Jesus called his disciples to him and says, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and I have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry. You see, he's saying that because the last time they were hungry, Jesus, the disciples said, well, why don't you just send them away? into the villages. And Jesus says, I'm not willing to do that this time because there's no villages nearby to go to. We are really out in the desert this time. So Jesus is, show, Jesus is showing he is unwilling to have people leave hungry. Now think about this. If Jesus is unwilling for people to leave hungry, how much more is Jesus unwilling for you to die and have eternity without him? You see, if he's compassionate about food, I'm sure he's more compassionate about much more important things. 2 Peter 3.9 says this, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. And in this context, it's talking about the promise of his second coming. Because the Bible predicted that people would say, Oh, Jesus has been promised he'd come back for thousands of years. Where's he at? Where's he at? And Peter said, No, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men would count slackness. But he is long-suffering toward us. Long-suffering means what? What's it mean? Patient. Yes, good for you. Long suffering. The reason that God is delaying the return of Christ is because he's patient. Why? What is he being so patient about? Because he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, I will tell you, I personally, when I was younger, when they would talk about Jesus coming any day now, I'd be like, yeah, that sounds great, but I don't want to come now. I want to get married. You know, I don't want to come now. I want to have kids. I don't want to come now. I still want life to live. And you know what, though? The older I get and the more wicked this world becomes, I'm like, come quickly, Lord Jesus. I see children suffering all over this planet. 
I see little girls being smuggled into sex trafficking. I see all kinds of torture and rape and murder. And I'm like, Jesus, come now. And the only reason he's not coming now is he knows that there's more people that need to be saved. He, doesn't, he is unwilling that any should perish, but that how many should come to repentance? All. You see, I do believe the Bible talks about predestination and election, and it's in there. But the Bible also makes it very clear that you have a choice and that God wants all to be saved. He knows who the elect are and who will be saved, but his desire is that all should be saved. And so therefore, how many people do you and I need to tell about Jesus? Everybody. We need to tell all about Jesus. And, and so if he is not willing that people should go away hungry, how much more is he not willing that any should perish? Because our Savior has compassion. And it would say, the disciples asked, now remember, just two months earlier, only two months, he fed maybe up to 20,000 people, okay? And this time, they're like, the disciples said, well, how can one feed these people here in a desert place? It's like, are you serious? <laughs> are you really asking that question? I mean, did you not realize he fed a whole lot more than this? Probably five times as many people as this just two months ago. And it's interesting, they said, how can one? And I don't even think they realize what they're saying. Like, who fed them last time? One. <laughs> Jesus was the one. And yet they're totally deja vu in this. They're, they're totally amnesia, is what I mean. And it says, when it comes to God, humans are plagued with short-term memory loss. We are really bad about it. Um, some of you have lost jobs in the past. And, and some of you are contract workers. You know, that's just part of it. You, you work a contract for two years, it's over, you got to look for a new contract. And I'm sure you've had times in your life, oh, what's going to happen? Is God going to provide? You know, how are we going to pay the bills? And then God provides. And he does it over and over again. And then we're like, man, and then a few years go by and we lose our job. We're like, oh, what's, what's going to happen? And it's like, do you not remember just a couple years ago God came through? And, it, and it, he always comes through, you know, and we need to trust him. But we have short-term memory loss. We're, pretty, we're really bad about it as, as people. We're just, we tend to forget when it comes to God. Psalm 103, David says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and read this with me, and forget not all his benefits. Why is he commanding us to not forget? Because guess what we'll do? We forget. We have the blessings of the Lord. We're so excited. We're like, yes, God is so good. And then a few months later, like, man, where's God when I need him? Because we forget all of his benefits. There's a, one of my favorite songs is Do It Again by Elevation Worship. And it says this, walking around these walls, I thought by now they'd fall, but you have never failed me yet. Waiting for change to come, knowing the battle's won, for you have never failed me yet. Your promise still stands, Great is your faithfulness, faithfulness. I'm still in your hands. This is my confidence. You've never failed me yet. If the Lord's never failed you, would you say amen? amen? He is good to all of us. So the next time you're in a really difficult situation, don't forget how much God loves you and that he's, he, may, he is seldom early, but he's never late. He will show up in time to deliver you from, from your struggle and he'll walk through it with you. So he asked them, Okay, I'm so glad that Jesus didn't say what I would have said. You bunch of dummies. Don't you remember two months ago? I mean, he could have said that and been right. It wouldn't have been sin. But what does, gently, what does Jesus gently do? He asks questions. By the way, that's a great method. Okay, when you're not sure how to approach somebody about a problem, instead of just being blunt and direct and, and hitting the, you know, everything with a hammer, why don't you ask questions? You see, 
When Adam and Eve sinned, God could have went in there with thunder and lightning and just destroyed them. But he comes in and says, hey, Adam, where are you? Does God not know where Adam's at? No, God knows where Adam's at. God wants Adam to know where Adam's at. He wants Adam to go, wait a minute. A moment ago, I was out there, and I'm in charge of planet Earth. Now I'm hiding behind a tree naked, you know, and I'm, I'm even ashamed of my wife, and she's ashamed of me, and we, we're hiding from God. Hiding from God as if that's possible. Look at, look at where you're at, Adam. And then he, he asks another question. What have you done? Now, God knows what they did. He wants them to think about, what have I done? I, I've just eaten this out of house and home. I've literally just destroyed paradise by disobeying and, and, and doing what the snake says. And then he asks the third question, who told you? Yeah, who did tell me that? I'm listening to a snake and not to the one who created the snake. You know, asking questions is so important. And that's what Jesus does over and over again. So he asks him, okay, hey guys, see if this sounds familiar. How many loaves do you have? <laughs> and they're like, uh, seven. And he's hoping that somewhere this is going to sound familiar. Uh, there's a, a, a guy named Yogi Berra. who was a great baseball player for the Yankees and then later coached the Yankees. And he, he's famous for this phrase, deja vu, all over again. And that's what this is like. This is like deja vu all over again with the disciples because they're not remembering. So he directed the crowd to sit down. And remember, he did that before too. And of course, being a Jewish crowd, they knew to sit down in, in 50s and 100s and all that. But the Gentiles, they just sat down. And... But he's hoping that maybe this will also ring a bell. How many loaves do you have? Okay, everybody sit down. They'd be like, oh yeah, that's right. Jesus is going to feed them. And he took the seven loaves. And having given thanks, he broke them and gave to the disciples. And you know what we see here is Jesus is giving a, a precursor to the communion, to the cross. Remember where Jesus sits down with the twelve? And he breaks the bread and gives thanks. See, when he does that at Passover, with the Last Supper, they're going to be like, oh yeah, remember he did that twice when he fed the 5,000? And here he's doing it again, proving who he is, that he's the Messiah. And he gave them to the disciples. Hold on, catch up here. All right, there we go. So you see in, uh, in Luke 22, when he, when he establishes the communion, the Lord's Supper, he says he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them. And he said, this is my body which is broken for you. That's why you see in Scripture such a heavy emphasis on bread. Now, I know it's not popular with your, all your special diets, okay? But healthy bread can be good for you, right? Jesus wouldn't say, I'm the bread of life, if bread was bad for you. So you just need to find the right kind of bread. But Jesus is showing over and over again that he is the bread of life. All the way back to Israel, wandering in the wilderness, what did he give them from heaven? Manna, or bread from heaven. And over and over again, you see prophets doing miracles with bread, Jesus doing miracles with bread, and all of it is pointing to the body of Jesus, how his body would be broken for us. In fact, in many parts of the world, especially in, in Jewish custom, you never take a knife and cut bread. You always break bread as a symbol of, of you wouldn't do violence to the body of Jesus, but his body was broken for us. In verse 7 it says, And they had a few small fish. Now the last time, they brought up the fact that he said, how many loaves do you have? They said five loaves and two, two fish. This time they didn't bring it up. So Jesus has to bring it up because they're totally forgetting here. They're totally having amnesia. And having blessed it, he said, hey, these also, we should set those before them as well. And they ate and they were satisfied. Every time Jesus does a miracle, he does it completely. 
These people didn't get just a Snickers to hold them over, okay? They were totally satisfied. They were like, you know, when you go to the buffet and you've had like way too much to eat. That's the way they were. And so Jesus satisfied everybody plus had leftovers. Isaiah prophesies something similar to this. He says, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has, watch this, no money, and what does he tell them to do? Come buy and eat. Now, now look at that carefully. Jesus says through Isaiah, everybody who has no money, I want you to come and buy. Well, how do you do that? How do you buy something when you have no money? You have to have somebody saying, put it on my tab. And that's what Jesus is doing, saying, you don't have any money, that's fine. You come get what you want. I'm going to put it on my tab. I will pay your debts because he does it on the cross. Come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. And then he asks this great question. Why do you spend money for that which is not bread? And he means like the true bread. And why do you work so hard for things that do not satisfy? Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. You know, we're, we've been fed a lie called the American dream. That if you go to college, you'll get the right job. If you get the right job, you'll make the right amount of money. You make the right amount of money, you might marry into the right class of people. You're married to the right class of people, you'll have beautiful, intelligent kids. And then you'll grow up and you'll, you'll buy this nice middle-class suburban home with a two-car garage and four bedrooms and a nice yard. And then you'll, you'll go on nice vacations and you'll have a nice retirement. And that's, a, that's life. And that's what satisfies. And it doesn't. I'm not saying that those things are bad, but if that's your purpose in life, just to, to earn a in, good income and have a nice retirement and then play golf until you die, that's really empty and that's really shallow. Don't, I'm not saying go fishing either. Fishing can be empty too if that's your purpose in life. But we know people are, that they've been taught that their whole life, that just, their life is just to walk the shore and collect seashells and, and just enjoy retirement and not live for the kingdom of God. Living for Jesus, giving your life away so that others can benefit, to, to support works like we are in Honduras so little kids can eat instead of you buying a nicer Buick. These are the things that make life worth living so when we sacrifice for others. But notice it says that in order to get this true bread that satisfies, in order to get this true water that quenches thirst, you must forsake your ways. You must say, I'm not, I'm not going to live my own life. I'm going to live for Jesus. And not, not only just what you do, your way of living, the way you even think, that you think, I'm a good person. I, I deserve to go to heaven. And the Bible says, no, you need to forsake that idea. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You need to realize I'm a sinner and I need Jesus and I need him to save me every day. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. There it is. Jesus having compassion again. And, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon I don't know what you've done today. I know your list probably isn't as bad as mine. I know that there's a lot of baggage in this room today. I know we all have backgrounds and things that we're not embarrassed and ashamed of. But it doesn't matter what you've done. Jesus will pardon you abundantly. Abundantly above all you could ask or think. More than you've ever done. It goes back to our passage here in Mark chapter 8 verse 8. It says, and they took up the broken pieces left over. And again, seven baskets full. So we had 12 for the 12 tribes and the seven for the seven Gentile nations. 
Deuteronomy backs this up by saying, when the Lord your God brings you into the land and you're entering and take possession of it uh, and clears away the many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Termites. No, that would make eight. There's seven nations there that are more numerous than, than that. So there's the seven nations, and that's what these seven baskets represent. See, Jews grew up hating Gentiles. And where's Jesus spent the last two months? Healing Gentiles, feeding Gentiles. And they're like, this is crazy. And by the way, another plug for the chosen, one episode where um, he tells James and John to go plow a field. And they don't know why they're plowing it. And, uh, and it turned out they plowed it for, for a Gentile. And they couldn't believe it. Like, and they were just mad that they did, did all that work. Anyway, you ought to check it out. It's worth watching. Um, it says, and there were about 4,000 people. Notice not men. Okay? So it's very different than the other miracle. And he sent them away. And immediately, Mark's favorite word, 41 times in the Gospel of Mark, he says immediately, because Mark's all about action. He says he got into the boat with his, with his disciples. That phrase there is super important because the last two times the disciples got in the boat without Jesus and it didn't go well. Remember? That they, both times they're about to sink and one, the first time they're like, Jesus, don't you care that we're all about to drown? So Jesus wakes up from his nap and says, peace be still and the storm stops. The second time he says, you guys get in the boat and just go. And then they're rowing all night long because there's a windstorm and they can't get where they're going and Jesus is walking on the water and walks to them. So the disciples are super glad that Jesus got in the boat with him. And John's like, Peter, don't let Jesus fall asleep. <laughs> Keep him awake. We'll be fine. And so they went to, they went to Dalmanutha. And, and so Dalmanutha is right here. They sailed across the sea from this far side to the right, across the sea, back to the Jewish side, close to his hometown, Capernaum. And Dalmanutha is a territory. So Jesus has gone back and forth across the sea a lot lately. And so the Pharisees come to him. Now, this was no, hey, Jesus is in town. Let's walk over there and see Jesus. Matthew tells us that they came up from Jerusalem. They walked a couple of days to get there. They are ticked off at Jesus because Jesus has taken away all the crowds. Everybody's following Jesus and not them. They're more about power than they are about pleasing God. And, and so Pharisees, um, they were the very strict rule followers of the day. They actually started off as a good thing. Because during the 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament, many Jews started to stray away from God and started to think, well, maybe he's not really coming. Maybe the Bible doesn't really mean what it says. Maybe it's just a metaphor. And they started taking a more liberal interpretation of the Old Testament. And the Pharisees are like, no, 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 this is God's word. God keeps his promises. And they became very strict about it. But then they started worshiping the rules, and over those 400 years, they, they strayed away to where they were just about the rules, not just protecting the Word of God. And it says, and they, became, they began to argue with him. Some translations say dispute with him. And really, there's no good English word for it. Probably the best English word is not a word we use often, and it's harangue. They were harassing Jesus. They're yelling at him. They're not even wanting to debate, like have a discussion. They're wanting to shout him down. So they're, they're really furious with Jesus in this situation. And they were seeking him from him a sign from heaven. Now, who, who in the Old Testament had signs from heaven? Go ahead, tell me. Who had signs from heaven? The prophets did, right? Elijah, what did Elijah do? He called down fire from heaven, right? 
Moses called down plagues, some that came from above. Okay, so they're like, if you're legit, if you're like Elijah, Moses, and Elisha, and other Old Testament prophets, why don't you do something that calls, calls down something from heaven? And they're testing him here. So um, what you see now, we move into, he fed the, the famished 4,000. Now he's fighting with the phony Pharisees. And again, these Pharisees are really strict people. And this is a picture from the chosen here. And what's interesting is, Many of the Pharisees were against Jesus. But did you know that many did follow him? Jesus was buried in someone's tomb. Who was it? Joseph of Arimathea, a Pharisee. And, and who did Jesus talk to by night in John chapter 3? Nicodemus, who later came for the body of Jesus. So there was actually a fair number of Pharisees who did get saved. And so here the Pharisees are seeking a sign from heaven. And he sighed deeply. Um, and so... What's interesting is the last time Jesus sighed deeply was when he healed the, the, the deaf and mute guy. Remember that? And he did that not because it was a hard miracle. just he felt so badly for this guy. But here Jesus feels bad, but not in a, a sense of compassion. He's frustrated. He's like, oh, brother. <laughs> you know, why does this generation seek a sign? And the word generation here doesn't mean like chronological. You know in Proverbs it says there's a generation that does not respect their parents. There's a generation that, whose eyes are haughty and lifted up. There's a generation. It means a type of person. Why does this type of, what does this group of people always seek a sign? He said, truly I say, no sign shall be given to this generation. I'm not going to do it. I'm, I'm, he, Jesus is at the, at the end of his rope here with these guys. Um, I keep turning my phone sideways. I'm losing this slide here. Sorry. Um, he said, no sign will be given. And then Matthew elaborates on this a little bit more. He says, but he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign. So Mark, just again, Mark is get to the point. Matthew gives out all the details because he's pretty OCD uh, about those things. And he says, an adulterous generation seeks after a sign. That's a pretty harsh words for him. You guys are an adulterous generation. You're evil and adulterous, and you're looking for a sign. No sign will be given, but he gives an exception here that Matthew includes, except the sign of the prophet Jonah. You know, it's interesting. How many of you read the book of Jonah? You know, Jonah and the whale, right? Do you remember any prophecies in that book? No, there, there's none. What, what's interesting is Matthew's saying that the book, the story of Jonah, is itself a prophecy. And Jesus explains why. He says, no sign will be given except the prophecy of Jonah. And for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man, Jesus referring to himself, be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He says, I'm not going to give you a sign from heaven. I'm not going to give you miracles. I'm not going to do all kinds of stuff for you. Here's what I'm going to give you, though. I'm going to be in the grave three days and three nights, just like Jonah was in the whale three days and three nights. But I'm going to rise again, and that will be your sign. So have you ever heard a friend say, if God just did a miracle for me, I'd believe? You ever heard anybody say that? People say it all the time. And you know the truth is they wouldn't. Think about this. If the greatest man who ever lived who did nothing wrong but heal people, heal the blind, raise the dead, feed the poor. And then he said, I'm going to die for you, and three days later I will rise from the dead. If you're not willing to believe that that happened, you're not going to believe if he turns your car into a horse or something crazy and miraculous like that. You're just going to write it off. You remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus? The rich man goes to hell, and he says, you know, send Lazarus over here to dip his finger in water and touched my tongue because I'm in torment here. 
And they're like, no, we can't because there's a gap between you and us. He said, well, then please have someone go tell my five brothers so they will not come here. And he's implying that he didn't have enough information. And you know what Abraham says to him? He said, if, if someone rose from the dead and told them, they will not believe. Which was Jesus telling this story as a forerunner. That's exactly what happened. Jesus did rise from the dead and thousands chose not to believe. Isn't that crazy? What would make you see a miracle, the greatest miracle of all? Someone rising from the dead and say, oh, I'm not going to believe that. It, it's the same reason people reject God today. They want to do what they want to do. They want to live their life. They want to be in control. They've seen the Bible's true. And that they, they don't even want to read the Bible because they're afraid it will convict them. And, and you and I may have been like that before you got saved. So I'm not knocking them or bashing them. I'm saying they need their eyes open just like our eyes were open so they can see what God has done because the greatest miracle of all has already been done. And that was the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So there is no better miracle than, than the resurrection of Jesus according to himself. So he fed the famished 4,000. He's fighting off the phony Pharisees. And now he's frustrated with his faithless followers known as the disciples. So he left them. He got into the boat. And they went to the other side. And when now they, who's they? The disciples. They had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them and said, watch out. Beware of the, watch out and beware. Now, when Jesus says, watch out and beware, I think we should pay attention. Don't you think? I mean, you see caution signs everywhere. Something that says, watch out. If you saw this on a fence and it said, watch out, you might be afraid to touch that fence. It might be an electrical fence. Or, you know, you may not open the gate to go in someone's yard if it has a beware of the dog, okay? And it's more than just a little yappy chihuahua. It's actually a big Doberman or a Rottweiler or something like that. Um, <clears throat> so in my neighborhood, some of you have been to my house, behind my house, there's like a big reservoir and water flows through it. And people like to walk back there. But on both ends of it, way down, you know, about a half mile this way and a half mile that way, there are rails and there's gaps that you can only walk through with the, you know, and there's signs there posted saying no motorized vehicles there. Well, there's some young kid that rides his dirt bike up and down the reservoir all the time. And uh, people, you know, have complained about it or whatever. And he has to literally lift his bike through the gap right past this sign that says that. Well, two weeks ago, he's riding his dirt bike by and there's like an empty lot near our yard and some of the kids were out there playing with their dogs. And one of the dogs went after his dirt, dirt bike and went right under the tires and killed the dog. Clearly posted no motorized vehicles and yet he pushed right through anyway. And now this little, this girl who lives next door to us, her dog that she loves is gone. Why do people do what they do? We know God's saying, thou shall not kill. Thou shall not commit adultery. Thou shall not steal. Thou shall not bear false witness. And God tells us all kinds of things not to do. Does he do it because he's trying to take away all fun in the world? No. He's trying to protect you from hurting you or hurting someone else. But you know what we do as human beings? We post right through. We push right on through. Adam and Eve, God puts them in a garden in paradise. And there's trees everywhere. Who knows how many trees? 100,000 trees? We have no idea how many trees. There's apple trees, pear trees, kumquat trees, 
Do kumquats grow on trees? I don't know. There's all kinds. Of, there's banana trees. You can make all kinds of different fruit salads. There's all kinds of nuts and herbs and all kinds of things to eat and everything. And he says, one tree, one tree, don't eat of it. And guess what tree they go after? And that's our human nature. God gives us everything. We're blessed with so much here in America. And God says, just don't do these things over here. And you know what we want to do? We want to do the one thing we're told not to do. You know, you've seen, how many parents say amen this morning? <laughs> you know how that goes, right? It says that he cautioned them. So watch out, beware. And here's what I want you to watch out for. The leaven of the Pharisees. Now leaven, you could just say the word yeast, okay? How many of you have any bread makers at home, okay? And you buy the little fleshman's yeast and you sprinkle. How much does it take to make that loaf rise? Very little. Just They come in little skinny packets sometimes to pour them in because some people don't measure it right. And you put too much and it overblows the machine. So leaven is what makes bread rise. It only takes a little bit to make it happen. And most of the time, not all the time, most of the time in the Bible, leaven is a picture of sin. He says, I want you to beware of the leaven or the sin of the Pharisees and the leaven or the sin of Herod. So Jesus had three groups of people that were opposing him. The Pharisees who were very legalistic, strict rule followers, but major hypocrites. They'd be sitting there, you know, following every single rule over here, but then they'd be committing adultery over here in secret, you know. Then the Sadducees were very liberal in the theology. Like, no, there's really no angels. There's really no resurrection. There's no miracles. That's just a bunch of stuff in the Bible that wasn't really true. And that's why the Pharisees and the Sadducees were constantly fighting out. It was liberal versus conservative. And then there was Herod, who's like, I don't care about any of y'all's religion. I'm just here for the party. I'm here for power. I'm here to live it up and have a great time. And you know, nothing's changed. We've got fundamentalist preachers preaching mean sermons, making everybody feel bad, saying women can't wear pants and don't wear jewelry, and they're just preaching, don't go to the movies, don't commit all the, and they're just boom, 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 just constantly hammering sins that really aren't sins, and they're just making up their own rules. And then you got liberals who are saying, you can do whatever you want, you can sleep with whoever you want, God loves everybody, there's no judgment, there's wrath. And then you got some who are just in it for the money, and they're driving their private jet planes and living mega million lives and just and preaching hypocrisy and all kinds of stuff. Nothing's changed, has it? The, the world is still the same. Jesus still has the same enemies as always before. So the disciples, though, totally missed the point. So they're like, hey, is he saying this because we forgot to bring bread? You know? And some people will try to point out there's a contradiction. It says that they didn't bring bread, but then they had one loaf in, in the boat. Is that a contradiction? If I said, hey, Aureli, would you bring bread today for the Valentine's banquet? And then you forget, but I find one loaf in the kitchen. I said, well, we got one loaf. Does that mean, is that a contradiction? No, there was one loaf in the bread. Now, what's funny is some pastors even think that the one loaf in the bread was Jesus, the bread of life. Maybe that's true. Maybe it, well, I, I don't know. We don't, we'll never know. We'll have to ask Jesus when we get to heaven about that. But they're totally missing the point, you know? And, and before... We jump on the disciples for being a bunch of dummies and low IQ. We do the same things. I mean, we know that there's things in the Bible, but we will live differently and we take matters into our own hands. Um, but they're, they're, they're discussing that maybe he's upset that we don't have bread and we're going to go buy bread from the Pharisees, but don't buy bread from the Pharisees. Beware. Huh, I don't get it. And Jesus, aware of this, that they're having this discussion, but he knows everything. He said, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Now, perceived means to acknowledge what the facts are 
and understand, the word literally means to put the facts together, like put two and two together. Are you not connecting the dots? And then he asks another question, are your hearts hardened? So Jesus asks nine questions here, and we're going to run through them quickly. And each one of the questions exposes a different problem of, of their thinking. Number one, they're discussing totally the wrong problem. Jesus is talking about sin. They're talking about, oh, we forgot bread. Is he mad? Number two, they total lack of understanding. They're not perceiving what's going on around them, what the significance of the miracles are. And part of the problem is their heart is becoming hardened. Is it possible? Can you really imagine that you're around Jesus so much and seeing so miracles that it's like, eh, another miracle, big deal. I think we do that. I, I think, you remember when you first got saved? how excited you were and just like, yeah, this is great. And, and then when someone else got saved and they got baptized, you're like, yeah, and you're clapping and you're like this. And I guess, here got somebody said got saved. Yeah, yeah. Somebody got saved at camp. Yeah, but we spent too much money for camp. And you're like, really? You're going to complain about how much money we spent for camp when here these kids got saved? And it's so like our hearts can be hearted. When the greatest miracle of all, when someone getting saved happens, we're like, yeah, okay, big deal. But that happens all the time. And then number four, they were unwilling to see. He said, you guys have eyes, but you're not seeing it. And you have ears, but you're not hearing it. How is that possible? It's because you're unwilling to. Unwilling to. I was watching a debate the other day where this guy was speaking at a college campus. And this girl was asking all kinds of questions about, well, the Bible has contradictions. This, and he was answering every single one of her questions just, and giving her answers, showing that she was wrong. And he said, let me ask you a question. He said, if you knew for a fact that the Christianity was true, would you become a Christian? And she said, probably not. And she said, if you knew for a fact that atheism was true, would you be an atheist? He said, yes, I would. He said, because I'm seeking truth, and I don't want to believe a lie, but you're not willing to become a Christian even if you knew it was true. That's the problem. That's the problem. People want to hold on to their sin. It's not, oh, the Bible's full of mistakes, or you know, I'm an atheist or whatever. It's, it's really a matter of lifestyle. And that's why you have to ask someone. If someone says they're an atheist, ask them, is there a reason you don't want to believe there's a God? Is there a change you would have to make in your life if you knew there was a God? And when you do that, you'll expose their idol, what they're worshiping instead of God. Number seven, he asked about how many baskets after the 5,000. He said, remember that? Remember how many baskets? Why is he asking how many baskets? Because the significance of the number, the 12, one for each of your disciples, one for each of the 12 tribes. Are you not catching the story here? And then I asked you, how many after the 4,000? And then you said seven. Do you not get the number there? Do you not follow what I'm doing? And then he says, do you still don't understand? Jesus, you, can, you could probably hear some impatience in Jesus' voice, some righteous indignation, because we as human beings, because our love of self can become pretty hard-hearted, and slow of mind. Verse 21, he says, and he said to them, do you yet or do you still not understand? What's keeping you from following God more or following God at all? What's keeping you from becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ? Is there something you don't understand? Is there something you're worshiping instead of him that's keeping that in your way from following him? In John chapter 6, it says, so they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets, talking about the previous miracle, with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign, what sign? When he fed the 5,000, when they saw this sign, Jesus had done lots of miracles, but when they saw this one that he had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who's come into the world. 
This was the most important miracle Jesus ever did besides the resurrection because it pointed to who he was, that he was the bread of life. He's the one who came to fill our hungry souls. We're all hungry for something. We try to fill it with popularity. We try to fill it with money. We try to fill it with sexual pleasure. We try to fill it with drugs. We try to fill the emptiness inside of us. But the truth is, the only thing that can fill the hole inside your heart is Jesus Christ. And that's why that miracle is so important that Jesus did. And so he asked the question, do you not yet understand? So you need to ask yourself this question. There's something keeping you from understanding that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. Romans 5, 6 says, for when we were yet without strength, we don't have, we're not able to save ourselves. In due time, Christ died for who? The ungodly. That's me. That's you. That's all of us. We're all ungodly, but Jesus came to save us. Do you know him? I would like for you to pray with me if you would. Just bow your head and close your eyes. And if you do know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, would you pray that the Holy Spirit of God would open hearts and minds this morning so someone either watching online or in here in person would open their heart to Jesus Christ. If you want to accept Christ as Savior, you could pray a prayer something like this. The prayer doesn't save you. Your faith in Christ does. But you could pray something like this. Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know many things that I have done so wrong. And yet I know that you lived a perfect life and that you died in my place on that cross. That should have been my punishment. So I accept your forgiveness because of what you did on that cross. I give my life to you because you gave your life for me. And I make you the Lord of my life and the Savior of my soul. In Jesus' name. If you prayed that prayer and you, you accepted Christ, I'd love to hear from you and welcome you to the family of God as a child, of, a new follower of Jesus Christ. And you can text me and let me know and we can talk about your next steps as a new believer. Um, we're going to do question and answer session now. Um, are you able to help me, Tori? Okay, good. So while Tori's coming up, um, you could text those questions in. Or if, you're, if you're not getting reception in the building, you could raise your hand and uh, ask the question. But here, Tori, come up here. And this could be anything about what's happening in the news or about the message. I need two hands here. And I think I saw some questions already came in. There you go. Jesus performs many signs, but when the Pharisees ask for a sign in Mac 12, he says none will be given except the sign of Jonah. Yeah. Yeah. Here, I'll take it. Okay. Jesus performs many signs, but... Is it on? I mean, is there a button? No, there's no button. No button. So go ahead and say it. I'll repeat it out on my mic. Go ahead. Jesus performs many signs, but when the Pharisees ask for a sign in Matt 12, he says none will be given except the sign of Jonah. Why does he say there will be no sign, yet he performs miracles? What is the sign of Jonah? Great. So the question is, why did he tell the Pharisees he wouldn't, but then many times he did perform miracles? So in the, the, understanding the Bible is like real estate, location, 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 okay? Where was Jesus at when he said it? Who was he talking to? He's talking to the Pharisees. And the only reason they wanted a sign is not because they really believed in him, right? They just wanted to test him and try to, you know, say, you know, they're always trying to trap him. So their intention wasn't good. When people came to Jesus with good intentions, he healed them. 
Remember how many people came to him and said, Lord, if, you will just, if I could just touch the hem of your garment, or if you'll just speak and the word and my daughter will be raised. When they came with good intentions, he did it. But he didn't do it to prove who he was. He just did it to confirm his words. What proved who he was was the miracle of the 5,000 and the resurrection. Okay, so it was people coming in with the wrong motives. That's why he told them that. He said, the only thing I'm going to give you is the resurrection. You just watch out for the resurrection. And the interesting thing is, that's when many of the Pharisees did get saved. But not most, but many. Good question. question. We got it working yet or no? Okay. I don't know if I'm supposed to read that. Let me see. <laughs> yeah, go to the next one. That'll be fine. All right, last question. So, Ben, if you want to come on up. How can we study the word in such a way that we can also learn more specific details about the words, about how the words are used? Examples being large versus small fish and basket. How are you able to identify what these words originally signify? That's a great question. Um, there's a great tool that you should buy. It's called a Strong's Concordance. Um, also, you can download a, uh, um, a software onto your, on your laptop. It's not a website. It's something you can actually put on your computer called eSword, E-Sword. And it, you just click on the word, and it tells you what the original word was, and it gives you background on that. So you could do that. Um, again, I, I don't want to create, though, two levels of understanding in Christianity, Okay. You have everything you need in your Bible, okay, to understand what you need to understand. Like, for example, he said two fish, but then he said a few small fish. He did say small, so you could say, well, what's a small fish? Okay, again, if you want to get into the language, you can find sardines, but you did know that there's a distinction between the two. So I don't want to, like, I grew up Catholic, and it pretty much was, you didn't need your Bible because the priest knew everything, and he'd explain everything to you, and you didn't have to do any Bible study. But the Bible commands us to study to show ourselves approved unto God. So you should study your, the Bible. Um, and then you have the, the Ethiopian eunuch who said, where Philip comes up to him and says, Hey, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I unless some man guides me? So we all need others to guide us from the books we read, from being in life group, from being in church. And I learn like you do from other people. Okay, and so there's lots of information we could learn just by reading, but keep digging, keep digging, keep reading your Bible, pray for the Holy Spirit to open your eyes, but also study and do the hard work. Uh, was there any other questions, or was that, that it? Okay, who's that? Yes, sir, Ricky. Either May or June, yes, sir. It'll be a good question. It'll be one week long. We'll fly out on a Sunday afternoon. We'll fly back in on a Sunday afternoon. Okay, so we'll have church and we'll head to the airport. We'll be gone all week. We'll have church down there and then get on the plane and come back. So Sunday through Sunday, eight days. And um, we're looking at approximately $2,300 per person, approximately. That's $2,300. And so, but that's everything included, airfare, meals, everything. Um, it's not going to be a vacation trip. It will be a roughing it trip, okay? It'll be a lot of hiking, and we'll, you know, and we'll be, it'll be, it'll be work, but that's what we're, you know, called to do. And, um, but we, the church is going to try to work together to raise it. So individuals will try to raise as much as they can. The church will try to help with as much as we can. And last time we went to Ghana, and there was a good group of us that went to that, and we raised, we raised all the money. And uh, I remember Lauren saying, I can't go. I don't know how I'm going to raise the money. And I think it was Patty said, trust God. 
<laughs> I think it was, was it Patty that told you that? And sure enough, boom, 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 man. I think your job pitched in and everything. Yeah, my job pitched in and I did sailing charts. Yeah, and man, here's this guy who is a skilled carpenter and we went over to Ghana and built houses. I mean, how, I mean that was obviously God's will for him to be there. So God, if God wants you to be on the trip, he's, he's going to make it happen. So be praying about it. Let me know if you're interested. So um, let's stand. We're, you know, usually we end in prayer or we end with a song or we end with a, a, what we call a benediction, which is a blessing. This morning, you get to do all three in one, and you'll see why. 